Okay, let's look at our um, our method for New Testament use of the yoke. Uh, some of this you may decide not to do because it involves Greek and Hebrew, depending on your uh, 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 availability, uh, your ability to use Greek and Hebrew. But first of all, you've got to identify the Old Testament reference. Now, usually that's pretty simple with a quotation. But if you're dealing with an allusion and you're using the margins of the missile online, which I hope you will when you're teaching and preaching, then you're going to need to validate that illusion. That is, why do I think this is an illusion? And remember, validation involves two or three unique words between the New Testament text and only one Old Testament text, typically. Could involve one word, as we saw, like amen in uh, Revelation 3.14. So, um, uh, so you've got to have unique word combinations and also um, uh, the same thing. Okay. That's typically the way you do it. In my handbook uh, that, that I've talked about, um, I have a section on that, uh, on, on validating illusions. Again, the, there's a debate. There, there, there are biblical scholars and pastors who are minimalist. They're very cautious about uh, if you do see an illusion, don't make too much of it hermeneutically, interpretatively, and be careful because it's not a quotation. Um, but if it's an illusion, and, and it's, it's a probable reference consciously by the author to the Old Testament, then I think we need to do something with it. That is, we need to interpret it. And uh, again, there are more illusions, many more illusions in the New Testament. There are quotations. And I think to really understand biblical theology, um, it's not just through the quotations, but through the illusions. So, um, now, some people say I'm a maximalist with regard to illusions. In fact, one uh, a, a review of my commentary was a favorable review, but he said, you know, Beale is a parallelomaniac. And, um, and I say, yeah, I am. Uh, uh, but, but I think I can validate it. So, um, at any rate. But at any time you're, uh, you know, on to a right method, sometimes you, you can... Uh, uh, misuse it and go too far. That's true of all of us. So, um, so secondly, then after identifying, analyze the broad New Testament context where the Old Testament reference occurs. Um, so, if you're preaching, uh, you know, through Ephesians, you find a, a reference in um, Ephesians two, or maybe it's maybe it's Ephesians three. Then, then you really want to, uh, if you're at that point teaching Bible study or preaching, then just very briefly, and you know, maybe 30 seconds, remind uh, everyone what's gone on up to this point and, uh, and what's flowing out of this point. So you, you, you want to get the broad uh, New Testament context, uh, whatever book that's in. Um, and uh, then what you want to do before you leave that is you want to look at the paragraph in which your allusion or quotation occurs. How does that quotation or allusion function? Uh, does it function um, uh, as a cause or basis for something? Is it an effect? Is it an explanation? 
Uh, is it something that's specific, that's developing something earlier, that's general? Um, uh, is it a contrast and so on and so on? You wanna deal with the logical function in, in the paragraph and, uh, and, and say, okay, that's how my, my quotation, Paul is using it as the basis for his earlier statement here in the preceding verse. Well, that's important. It's important to do. Do you want to review the kinds of logical connections there are between uh, verses or propositions in scripture? Uh, I review that in um, a, a little book called um, a um, interpretive lexicon to the Greek New Testament. Uh, so it's just a little book. It's not expensive, published by Zondervan, an interpretive lexicon to the Greek New Testament. But in there at the very beginning, I give the various kinds of logical relationships that you can have between propositions or verses. So that would be important in, in doing the step. Number three, analyze the Old Testament context, both broadly and immediately, um, especially interpreting the paragraph in which the quotation <laughs> or allusion occurs. So if you're in Isaiah 49.6, you know, we'll look at that, I hope. And um, you'd want to look at, okay, uh, first of all, Isaiah 1 to 39 is its own kind of a, a section, and Isaiah 40 to 54 is its own section, and 55 to 66 is its own section. By the way, I think Isaiah wrote it all. Some think it's Trito Isaiah, some think it's Deutero Isaiah. I think it's all of Isaiah, but... Um, I have an article of that in my book, The Erosion of Inerrancy and Evangelicalism. I have a whole chapter on why I think Isaiah wrote Isaiah. But anyway, don't want to get into that rabbit trail. Um, so uh, but, so you'd want, what you'd want to do in the case of Isaiah 49.6 is you'd want to say, okay, how does chapters, the, the, the main topics of chapters 41 to 48, uh, how are they flowing and how do they flow into 49? And then how does 49 flow into 50 to 53? So you want to do that, okay? This is called contextual interpretation, all right? Then what you want to do with Isaiah 49.6, let's say, you'd want to see, okay, how is it logically connected to uh, the preceding verses? In fact, really a paragraph is Isaiah 49.1 through 6. So how, how does verse six relate to that paragraph? Is it the basis for something? Is it an effect? So on and so on. And then how does it relate to 49, seven through eight and on? So um, this is very important to do that. Now, again, it's an art form if you're going to do open maneuver in teaching Bible studies and preaching because you, you, you can't take as long as I'm taking uh, on some of these passages in a sermon. So, you know, it, really have to do your work and then summarize it. You know, you've got to, you know, some sermons in the United States are 40 minutes, some are 20. If you're doing 20 minutes, you've got a real challenge. If you have 40, a little more time. But nevertheless, uh, you've got to develop a, a homiletical art form and summarizing these kind of material. Okay, so um, <clears throat> then after analyzing the Old Testament context, you want to survey the use of the Old Testament early and late Judaism that might be of relevance to the New Testament appropriation of this Old Testament. First of all, let me say this, that a lot, some of this material is online, but you're probably not going to, to have it. Um, uh, 
Tyndale Library has at the University of Cambridge Library has these Jewish sources. So, that, so in, in my handbook, I have a chapter on this and I list the Jewish sources that are in English. And you can go to the scripture index and look at, okay, where's Isaiah 49.6 and see how they interpreted Isaiah 49.6. That's very interesting to, to place it in its historical context. It may be that Isaiah 49.6, the way the Jews understood it is diametrically the opposite the way Paul understood it. Well, that's helpful, isn't it? Shows the uniqueness of the New Testament and of uh, uh, apostolic interpretation at that point. It may be, on the other hand, that Isaiah 49.6 is interpreted in ways that shed light on and help us better understand what Paul is saying. Why? Because, hey, not everybody was an unbeliever in, Ju in Judaism before the time of Christ, um, uh, just as not everybody was an unbeliever until the Re Reformation, correct? So there were probably some Jewish saints who were good interpreters before the time of Christ, and they can, they can give us insight. Um, not, they're not canonical, uh, but in the same way that a modern commentary, I'm sure all of us have been benefited by modern commentaries, right? Uh, they're not canonical. So this material is not canonical, but it's early commentary material, okay? So um, now you may not have access to it. And so if you don't, then look at some of the more technical commentaries that you ought to have if you're preaching on a book and, uh, and, and they may mention uh, times when Judaism is important. Now in our book, our big book here on uh, commentary on New Testament use of the old, we actually have a step in it. We ask interpreters to say, okay, show where in Judaism this passage was mentioned and how does it relate to the quotation in the New Testament? So this can be a tutor uh, for that, um, okay? All right. Um, sometimes the Jewish use may, you may look at it and say, I don't know how that could relate uh, to my passage. Sometimes that happens too. And so then also then what you want to do in five and six, you want to uh, compare the text in the original languages. And um, uh, you, you want to uh, have your New Testament text in a column on the right, then you want to have a column of Hebrew, and then the Greek Old Testament, and, um, and you can actually uh, uh, find the Aramaic Bible uh, called the Targum. Um, you can find that translated in English. Um, and uh, so you, you put, usually it's going to be Hebrew, Greek, uh, Septuagint, and New Testament. And you color code the differences or underline the differences. And you decide, okay, is the New Testament author dependent on the Greek Old Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament? And then in six, you say, so what difference does that make? I call it the Dorinda principle, my wife's name. So what difference does it make? And uh, so um, if it's dependent on the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew, why? Now, it, it may be that there's a, the LXX has so paraphrased the Hebrew to bring out an interpretive slant that the New Testament writer wants to bring in. It may also be that there's not any significance to the paraphrase. It may be a paraphrase that doesn't change the meaning. Uh, 
It may not have that much significance. Um, and if it's uh, uh, to the Hebrew text, then you want to make sure to interpret in its context at that point. Um, then, after comparing the text, analyzing the author's textual use, and again, in our book, we do that. Uh, so this can be a good book when you're doing old and the new. It'll help you analyze the text if, if uh, you know, you're not steeped in the languages. Um, seven, seven is the key. If you don't, if, if you don't do four through six, you got to do seven. What's the author's interpretive or hermeneutical use for the Old Testament? And then you start troubleshooting them. We just looked at, is this direct fulfillment? Prophetically, is this indirect typological fulfillment? Is this an analogy? Is this for typical use? Uh, is this an ironic? And so on and so on. You can, by troubleshooting, it kind of helps you decide, you know, uh, which use this is. Um, and remember, some of them can overlap. For example, if you have a textual use and a, um, um, let's see. Yeah, textual use and a, a use that speaks of the uh, abiding authority of a text, uh, those can overlap with prophetic uses, uh, typological uses, and so on. So sometimes they can overlap. Um, you might have two or three uses, but one use that's the major focus. Um, so that's basically what you do here. And especially what you want to do here is remind yourself of uh, what, you, what you did up here uh, and here. What role does the quotation play logically in its paragraph in the old and in the new? Remind yourself of that. And then um, you, you want to say, okay, this is a, a typological use. Now, if you're going to say it's a typological use, you want to say, why is it typological? Well, it's, well, it's introduced with a fulfillment phrase. That's why it's typological. Or it's used with phrases like that. It's clear that the author sees this event as prophetic. Now, we're going to talk more about that. Uh, we're going to launch off into that in a moment, how you can tell something is typological as opposed to just analogical. But uh, and sometimes, as we've said, that's hard. Um, okay. Um, and then what you want to do... Uh, Eighthly, is analyze the author's theological use of the Old Testament. And there are two ways to do this. One way is just get a good systematic theology. Turretin, Bobbing, Burkhoff, those betray my theological uh, leanings. And um, uh, look at the table of contents. And, you know, you, know, you go through it, Christology, Ecclesiology, Homardiology. Uh, theology proper. What does this uh, use of the Old Testament, uh, what does it express theologically? So it may be, you know, we saw with regard to Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that falls under Christology. And you want to make that point very clear that, wow, who is Christ? He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the God of Daniel 4, identified with that God who humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And that's, that's, that's significant because we want to present Jesus to people 
uh, in all the various ways the New Testament presents Jesus. Yes? Um, Bavink, Turretin, and uh, Burkhoff. Burkhoff is the shorter among those. Uh, all the others are multi, uh, Turretin is three big volumes, Bavink is more. But you should have them all. Now, I have them all. Then you want to ask, people will come to my library and say, have you read all of this? I say, no. <laughs> a lot of what I have are tools, including the systematic theologies. Because what I'll do, let's say you're preaching, get your systematic theology out, or two or three of them, look at the scripture index, which they have, and look at, and if it has your passage, which it will, look at it, see what they say about your passage. It can give you insights into your passage. Use it as a tool. Okay? When you buy it, don't think, oh, I've got to read this whole thing. Hey, that'd be great if you did. Okay, wonderful. It'd be great if I had read it, all of it. Um, I did read a complete systematic theology at, at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. I, uh, but um, I haven't read those that I mentioned all the way through. So, um, so yeah, I use them as tools. Really helpful. So be aware of that. Um, that, 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 so that, that'll help you. Also, they're not only systematic categories, but then there are biblical theological categories. Now, for that, I would go to the a New Dictionary of New Testament Theology published by IVP. Um, uh, maybe you have that. If you don't have it, you ought to have it. And look through the categories there. For example, is this about a biblical theology of the Exodus? Is this a biblical theology of the temple? You don't find those categories in the systematic theology. Um, but there, there are those categories of biblical theology that, that, that are important. Uh, uh, is this a biblical theology of the Adamic commission? And so on. So um, th those are important. All right, and then finally, uh, you want to analyze the author's rhetorical use of the Old Testament. Now, uh, this is the good rhetoric, okay? And you're just asking, how is John, how is Paul using this Old Testament text to move the readers? How does he want to move them? To a certain belief about Christ? To a certain belief about the church? To a certain ethical action, for example, like unity or love? So forth and so on. I, I call this the, the homiletical use or the pastoral use. This is the use that you really want. You, you want to try to see What's the use in scripture? And then you really want to make that your use. Okay. okay. Uh, any, any questions about uh, the procedure there on uh, the steps of interpreting the old and the new? Okay. Um, so we're gonna take a one minute break here because now uh, we're gonna launch off into a, a typology um, lecture. And um, so I'm gonna need a little help change this to my uh, PowerPoint, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Vamos a hacer. Are we okay? Yep. Wonderful. Okay. This lecture is titled Typology. We've already talked a lot about it. You might say, what more can you say? <laughs> well, do you remember uh, someone on the screen? Is a fellow from Jerusalem here? Raise your hand if you're here. I don't. Yes. Okay. Well, the fellow from Jerusalem asked, you know, it seems like typology has been used so allegorically. People read in stuff, uh, you know, the acts that uh, uh, floated must represent uh, uh, the hatchet of Christ who is able to cut Satan down or something like that. You know, weird uh, uh, kinds of allegories uh, that sometimes are seen as typologies. And uh, so, but sometimes the two become synonymous the way people use typology. Uh, allegories reading in, allegories from the word uh, uh, alos and agoreo. It means uh, uh, other speaking uh, or proclaiming. In other words, reading another meaning in than the author intended. That's the actual meaning of, of allegory. So, um, I'll give you Roman numerals here. My, my first point is to be Roman numeral one, the definition of typology. And this is easy because we've already talked about it. Uh, the study of correspondences. Okay, that's number one. Between person, events, and things within the historical framework of God's special revelation. So that's the second thing. Uh, it's correspondences one between uh, persons and things within the historical record of scripture. So that's number two, uh, things within the historical framework of God's special revelation, which from a retrospective view are of a prophetic nature and escalated. So the study of the correspondences between persons, events, and things within the historical framework of God's special revelation from a retrospective view or of a prophetic nature. I give that definition on page 14 of my handbook on New Testament use of the old. But again, we've gone over about three or four times, well, maybe three, what the major elements are, typology, correspondence of things, number two within the historical framework of scripture, number three that are prophetic, number four from a retrospective view, and number five escalated. Now, the word type comes from tupos, which can mean a mark, a figure, an image, a form. In John 20, 25, it refers to the marks in Christ's hand. Uh, doesn't always refer to, you know, something about the future. Um, there is a book which um, was a dissertation. It's a published dissertation um, on... Uh, the word tupos and its uh, its word group. I had that footnote, and I'll give you the footnote later. Um, but in that book, this fellow analyzes not just the uses of the tupos word group in the New Testament, 
but also outside the New Testament in Philo and Josephus and elsewhere. And uh, after a, a lot of work looking at the different meanings of tupos, he, he gives the following summary that it, that it has uh, uh, two ranges of meaning. Number one, it can refer to a hollow mold, a hollow mold that leaves an impression. Like take a cookie mold. I don't cook cookies, but I've you know, seen my wife and others do it. You don't have these little tin molds. Let's say you want to make star cookies. So you get the tin mold, uh, you get the dough, put it in the pan, you start stamping it with the tin mold. And uh, the mold uh, is, is, you know, my wife doesn't hang the mold up and put it on the wall. Um, it's not an end in itself, is it? It has something beyond itself. It has a shaping power. It's shaping the dough. Now she does have an antique cookie mold that's wood, and she does hang that on the wall, but she doesn't use it. Okay. Now, so that's the first, a hollow mold that leaves an impression. And that's its purpose. The second is sometimes tupos in its word group can just be the impression itself that's left, like the marks in Jesus' hands. Okay. Um, so it's the result of uh, the pressing of the hollow mold. And sometimes he says that both these meanings can be involved simultaneously, sometimes. So that the, the idea is that this, uh, this mold has a dynamic shaping power. Um, so, so, so the idea really, you just think of a mold. It's not there for itself. It, it has a, a shaping power. And in fact, another way, another illustration of this is a different kind of use in the New Testament where tupos refers to a moral example. Remember where Paul says, be an example to others. Um, it doesn't take many passages to remind you of that. First uh, Thessalonians uh, 1, 7, where Paul says, um, uh, you, uh, you follow the example of the apostles and prophets in receiving the word in the midst of much tribulation. And then uh, it goes, that's verse 6, verse 7 goes on and says, and you become examples, or you became actually, you became because of the way you received the gospel, the way you acted the gospel out in your life, you became examples to those in Macedonia and Achaia. The word there is tupoi. You became types to those. And Paul can also say, likewise, in uh, 1 Timothy 4.12, for Timothy, become an example in your preaching, in your teaching, in your life, in purity. Uh, the word is type there. So what's going on there? Um, well, there's a similar idea. Uh, it's not used in a prophetic sense, but the point is that Paul is telling the Christians there that the essence of discipleship, you're not here for yourself. You're a mold. You, by nature of being a Christian, we're to have a shaping power. That's discipleship. It's a beautiful, practical point. But I'm just now using it as an illustration to show 
that in an ethical sense, we're not here for ourselves. But we're moles. We're, we have to do something beyond ourselves. And historically, as we come back to events, that's what these events are. They're sort of moles. They're not there for themselves in redemptive history. They have a dynamic shaping power. Not like direct verbal prophecy. It's, it's an event foreshadowing. So I think that's, uh, that, that helps us understand the meaning of the word. Um, I'll try to find that put in the reference for you. Um, all right. Uh, so, with those five elements of the definition, correspondence, historicity, forward pointing, escalation, retrospection, uh, you can call typology indirect event prophecy or uh, foreshadowing events. Um, now I'm going to contend that types should not be limited to those uh, just identified by the New Testament, but that we can perceive other types in the Old Testament. We will get to that pretty soon. So that's Roman numeral one, just dwelling on the definition of typology. Roman numeral two is a distinction between typology and direct verbal prophecy. Distinction between typology and direct verbal prophecy in here be sure that you have your English Bible out because I want you to follow me in some passages because here I'm going to show illustrations uh, about the distinction between direct verbal prophecy and indirect typological prophecy. And part of the purpose of this exercise is to show you how clearly Jesus and the apostles understood that events were prophetic. <clears throat> one may agree or disagree with that, but one has to acknowledge that they believed it, okay? So let's look at this. Now, direct verbal prophecy foretells future events merely and directly by words, just as we saw in Matthew 2 from Micah 5, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, typology, on the other hand, foretells future events indirectly through history. It doesn't foretell the future by direct words. It prefigures it. That's another word to use. It prefigures the future by historical events, institutions, persons, and things. Now, intriguingly, both are considered prophecy by the apostles. We're going to see that they will introduce direct verbal prophecy and indirect event prophecy types by the formulaic phrase, and it was fulfilled. They didn't distinguish them intriguing, intriguingly, at least as far as we can tell. Now, if you ask them, I think they probably would. But um, so uh, the New Testament formula, then it might be fulfilled, applies both the fulfillment of Old Testament direct verbal prophecy and indirect typological prophecy. And I want to start out by showing you that. Look at chapter 19 of John, chapter 19 of John. Chapter 19, verse 36. For these things came to pass. Now remember, this is remember Jesus is on the cross. They they decide he's dead. Um, they did not break his legs in verse 33. 
as they broke the legs of the other two people who were crucified. And um, in verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced the side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. He who has seen this is born witness and his witness is true and he knows he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. Now, some commentators think that may not be John speaking. It might be the Roman centurion. I'd be really interested. He may, he may be right. Uh, that, that, that author is J. Ramsey Michaels, uh, an article in Catholic Biblical Quarterly back in the 70s. Um, verse 35, he was seen as born witness, his witness is true, knows he's telling the truth, so he may believe. Now, verse 36, for these things came to pass. Now, this is John, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There's your fulfillment formula with Plebrato. Not a bone of him shall broke, be broken. And another scripture says, which is part of the fulfillment formula, they shall look on him whom they pierced. We talked a little bit briefly about this uh, quotation in verse 36. It's from Exodus 12, not a bone of him will be broken. It's about the ordinance of the Passover lamb. And so it's an event that was enacted over and over again, which is what Exodus 12 said should happen. And so that Passover lamb is seen by John in some way as pointing to Christ so that he is the fulfillment of everything that that lamb was. What did that Passover lamb do, by the way, when they, they came out of Egypt? Well, the, the blood was put over the lentils and wherever that was, it, it covered those people and those that were covered by it were redeemed. And uh, so I think we can also include that function and apply it to Jesus here on the cross. Uh, he is the epitome of what that Passover lamb did physically. Uh, he did spiritually uh, to redeem people from their sins and captivity to Satan, not just captivity to a physical nation like Egypt. So, um, so that's introduced as prophecy. That's amazing. Now look at the next phrase though. Verse 37. And again, another scripture says they should look on him and when they pierce. That's Zechariah 12 10. That's a direct <laughs> verbal prophecy. Let me read it for you. Pretty well known. God says, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And of course, it quotes just part of that verse. They shall look on him whom they pierced. So this is a good example where the fulfillment formula introduces a type and event and introduces a direct verbal prophecy. And John sees both. As prophecy. By the way, remember it is a, a Roman centurion that pierced Jesus, or one of the soldiers, and, um, and yet it says in verse 37, they shall look on him and they pierce. Who's included in the they? Certainly he's got to include the Roman who pierced Jesus. He's included in the they. But the prophecy is about Israel. The they in Zechariah is Israel. 
uh, we, we know that one of the soldiers repented at the cross. I think this is probably one of them. And so uh, here we have at the very inception, the Gentiles are included in the fulfillment about the prophecy of the salvation of Israel. They're Israel. This is not just analogy here. They're not like Israel. This Gentile is part of Israel. He's part of the fulfillment of Israel. There's no distinction between the church and Israel here. Israel is the people of God, the church. Remember, that's why we're called the ecclesia, which refers to the congregation of Israel in the Old Testament, especially the Israel, um, uh, the, uh, the church of God in, in uh, Nehemiah 13.1. Okay, uh, so that, that, that's a really good example to start off with. Um, uh, let's look at other examples, Matthew. Yes, yeah, sir, yeah, anytime, because this is tough stuff. Yeah. The first one you saw, which was also the last. Yeah. It was intermediately like this, but it would sound pretty cool. Yes, there is, we could talk about that, there may be. Mm -hmm. Both may be in mind. Right. Both may be in mind. Yeah. Would you think that the, the writer of Psalm 34 is also thinking about that passage? Is I think it's, it's he's developing uh, chapter 12 right. of Exodus. Right. Yes. So we see that even the Old Testament writers are sort of using the yes. Yeah. Sort of yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Thank you for that. I wasn't going to mention that, but yeah, there, there's a whole book written by a Scandinavian uh, fellow on that psalm and how it relates to. Um, um, that passage, I actually talk about that and ha how that psalm relates to this in my handbook, if you're, if you're interested. Um, but, but thank you for that. And it does help us better, even better understand uh, this passage, yes. The, the thing with the psalms is, it, is many psalms also have the opposite statement. In, in 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 expressing um, anguish, the psalmist typically say, "They broke for my bones." Mm -hmm. So what, what 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 do you make of that? Then? I'd have to see what passage you're talking about. You, you need to be specific if you can. Yeah, I'd have to see that. So maybe at lunch, let me know, and I, and I can come back and and address that. Um, the passages I think mainly in mind are the ones we've mentioned. I do think it's what Psalm 32 or 4, 34. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's included. I think it's it's not in my it, it's often not in the margins of the Bible. Usually it's just um, uh, uh, Exodus 12, but I do think like Psalm 34 is involved. So yeah, just ask that one after uh, after lunch, and I'll try to address it. Um, any, any other questions? Thank you, that's an excellent question. By the way, it's very important sometimes to see if a passage that's quoted in the new, if there's that intermediate mention of it in the Old Testament, because sometimes that Old Testament text will elaborate a little bit more on the earlier passage and both have influenced the New Testament writer. That's why it's important to see that intermediate link. That's why it's important to know the old and the old. As I've been talking about, yeah. Um, so on the they shall open him whom they pierced in Zechariah, are you saying that when we read Zechariah, um, we can include Gentiles? Like, so if we were preaching straight from Zechariah rather than from 
If you're preaching Zechariah, you wouldn't want to say by itself, and this includes Gentiles in the church. No. You want to go to John 19 and explain it and say, let's see how John uh, understands this passage. It's not just about the salvation of ethnic Jews, it's also about the salvation of Gentiles. So they're included in this prophecy about Israel. So you, you'd want to, and yes, I do think if you're preaching in the Old Testament, you should always be aware, is this passage quoted elsewhere in the Old Testament? And is it quoted elsewhere in the New? Now, again, you have to develop the art homiletically of summarizing that stuff, because if you're passing a, preaching on an Old Testament passage, you want to preach on that passage mainly, okay? But you want to let other scripture interpret it, right? And I think we want to teach our people how to do that to the extent that we can. By the way, if I'm preaching on Zechariah 12, and let's say I don't refer to anything else in the New Testament, and just Zechariah 12, I give a good explanation of Zechariah 12, how it's about the coming of the Messiah and Israel will mourn and they'll repent and so forth and so on. And I don't talk about Jesus. I don't talk about the New Testament. What's the difference between what I'm doing there as maybe a good interpreter and a good rabbi who's interpreting and preaching the same text. Somebody asked me that one time. It's kind of convicted me. What's the difference? There's no difference. If we're going to preach as Christians, there should be some legitimate way to bring Christ into the picture. Not to eisegete, not to allegorize, but there is a legitimate way to do it. Every time in a paragraph. I think that's hugely crucial in preaching. We need to do that. Unless we want to be like rabbis. Okay. Um, I, I want to turn briefly to Matthew 2 because we're going to have a about an hour lecture on Matthew 2. I don't want to do too much with it, but just to show you again uh, how Matthew uh, 2 introduces with a fulfillment formula an event. Matthew 2.15. The Holy Family was in Egypt until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. Now, that's from Hosea 11.1. 1. We talked about it briefly. That is a historical recollection of Israel coming out of Egypt. Here, it's taken... <laughs> The Holy Family coming out of Egypt is seen as fulfilling it as a prophecy. Again, some, of, some people have rejected the doctrine of the absolute authority of Scripture and inerrancy because of this text and other texts like it. You can't turn an event into a prophecy. This is why I'm spending so much time on this. But this is the major objection to the use of the Old and the New, quite frankly, when people have the objections. They think what the apostles are doing or allegorizing. And, and that sort of thing. Um, look, 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 look at uh, verse 17. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. And that is from Jeremiah 31, 15, which is describing an event in the Old Testament that points, same as uh, fulfilling prophecy, that event. Um, now this 
phenomenon of a fulfillment formula introducing a typological event of the Old Testament, it's not unique or unusual just to the passages that I've looked at. I mean, let's look at some others. For example, turn to Matthew 13, 35. I mean, I just want to saturate you with this because I want you to know that uh, even if you don't think uh, types are prophetic, Jesus and the apostles did think it. So Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 35. Remember, Jesus has been giving these parables. And then he says in verse 35, uh, in verse 34, all these things, Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. He was not talking to them without a parable. So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Plerothe. The passive of plerao. Fulfill. Saying, I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. And that is uh, from Psalm 78, 2. Now, Psalm 78, 2 is a long psalm about the cyclic unfaithfulness of Israel and how they're not responding to God's revelation. This quotation comes at the beginning. What did Jesus' parables do? We just read earlier in chapter 13 and verse 11, after they asked him in verse 10, why do you speak in parables? He answered, said to them, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Verse 13, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they don't see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And they're, they're fulfilling uh, uh, the, the Isaiah 6 prophecy where people have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. The point is, the point of, of uh, the parables, Jesus is raising a flag saying, my parables are an indication that Israel has rejected. Now there'll be a remnant that'll be saved. You apostles, and of course, verse 16, blessed are your eyes because they do see, your ears because they hear. But the, those are the ones in verse 11 to whom it has been uh, given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To others, it's not been granted. The majority of Israel has rejected. And that's the point that generation after generation of Israelites have rejected in the psalm. And, um, and it's introduced with this uh, statement about parables. God spoke to them uh, in various ways, including parables. They didn't listen and rejected. And so now this cyclic rejection of God's revelation is fulfilled in an epitomized way. It reaches its zenith in Christ. And this is why uh, redemptive historically, the people of God passes from uh, uh, the theocratic nation of Israel to the church as the continuation of true Israel. <laughs> we will continue to look at some of these uh, uh, passages uh, when we come back.